like it's actually bad, like it's garbage, like literally garbage. I think everyone's gay. The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. So, I really want to figure out, because it's time, now that we've got four listeners, it's definitely time to take this to the next level. It's just our family. I want a soundboard, and I want to just fill it up with amazing audio clips. What do you think about this? I'm going to play this little audio for you, and I think you'll find this very interesting. Since you're into music theory, or you used to be, you're basically like an orchestral musician. I have taken music theory. I don't think I'm into music theory, but... I mean, when people say, what does your brother do? I say he's a a music theoretician. Oh, good. Yes, I'm a theoretical musician. (laughs) I'm a theoretical musician. Yes, exactly. Theoretically, he's a musician. (laughs) Okay. This is, I, this could be total bullshit, but she sounds like she knows what she's talking about. So the sounds that we all grew up with make us the way we are. And in music, rhythm affects how you play and the rhythm of the sounds around you as you grow up. So for example, in Orkney, people speak very softly and gently and quite kind of staccato. And they would play the fiddle in the same way. Perhaps in Shetland, they would play a little bit more confidently and speak more confidently. Now we're going to play a tune. Um, And then perhaps, say, in Northern Ireland, they've got quite a sort of hard accent and they play quite a lot from the elbow. And then Southern Ireland, for example, they've got beautiful, soft, rolly, lovely accent, which is lovely like that. And they play, apologies to the Irish people and Shetlanders for my accent, they play very softly and slidey, like their voice. I could listen to that all day. So this sounds oh my god! Anyways, do you buy that? That sounds. It seems really cool. I don't know. I kind of like the theory. I have never heard about this, um, but I would believe that it's a thing. I mean, it yeah. sounds interesting. I mean, people are affected by all sorts of things in their local environment, musically and whatnot. Um, I almost wonder if it could be the opposite direction. Like, what if it's the music and all that kind of stuff that you're exposed to as a child? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably both. Yeah. I know one thing that is really interesting is, uh, well, like, one thing they propose for music education is that you should start earlier. And, like, it's, uh, they compare it to babbling. So, like, how you babble when you talk, Mm. you begin to talk, you just sort of babble. Uh, You're not speaking the language properly and whatnot. 
Um, we don't wait until your brain is developed enough to where you could speak full sentences to then teach you language, like we do often with music. And so people have proposed that what we should do is teach you early, like to babble with music, like just to sing little intervals and melodies and rhythms and whatever, just let the child kind of do whatever. Um, and then that develops into a more refined musical sensibility. And I think that's actually pretty interesting. And I think it's it's true. I'm always like, and I don't know how this happens, because I think there's a difference between like, all right, let's get the racism started like, oh right God. off of that. No, <laughs> um, no I was just going to say, Whoa. I think there's something different between like the like the Asian kid, like musical prodigy, like, cause you see a ton of them. And, and I almost feel oh, like that is like mm. inculcated in them. Like they, they foster that somehow through like training, like formal training. And they're obviously, they know how to do it. Like they, well, they do to, get like, lessons. Some people right. like, at least the prodigies that I've known have had lessons since they were very young, which I think really that's the biggest thing is that's, that. Which is yeah. probably the, the like, okay, we're going to like force you to babble music. So there's that. And then I think that there's like the 15 year old homeless kid who like found a guitar and doesn't know any music theory. Oh, yeah. But can yeah. play the shit out of the guitar or something, you know, and you're just like, where does that come from? Yeah. Like it's def so <laughs> there's definitely some kind of like naturalness to. Yeah. That ability almost. It's, it's so, so interesting. No, I think music is like that. I think music is inside you or something. I don't think you need to be taught how to be a musician. I think you can be taught how to play an instrument um, because that's a more nuanced and technical skill that isn't natural. But I think I guess that'd be actual... like language, like we were talking about, where it's yeah. like you don't have to know anything about, you don't have to know parts of speech and grammar rules to actually do it. And you right, could kind be of like, like that. the best poet in the world or, you know, writer, novelist, and never even know theoretically. Yeah. yeah, and like the meaning of speech, like we don't teach you all the things you're going to say. We just teach you the language, like the semantics. And even that is kind of vague, like how we're actually teaching that to you. And music, I feel like, is similar. Like how, like what is the song that comes out of you, like the meaning? I think that that is, you don't teach that to people and that people have to have. Um, yeah, and some of the best music probably breaks rules. So, like, you have the – and what are the rules? Like, they're arbitrary because, you know, like, there was, like, all those different, like, church chants, like, Gregorian chants and stuff. Mm -hmm, like, I mm -hmm. feel like there was controversy, like, as they would add, like, multitonal versus, like, one. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, we can't yeah. do that. That breaks the tradition. It's like, well, yeah, maybe. But look where we – and, I mean, obviously, it's so funny because you're like – well, they must have been right because look at us now. Our music's garbage, or at least what's popular. <laughs> but maybe that's something else. I think that's probably something else. But yeah, there is something interesting about the rules. Like way back in the day, there was only really church music and you know Gregorian chant. It was reserved for people in the church, and it was reserved for being performed in the church. And it was very scandalous to perform non or to perform secular music, non you know religious music. And that was, yeah, way back in the day. And only certain kinds of intervals or harmonies were permitted in the music. Like they didn't write certain um, harmonies. So you wouldn't hear anything dissonant. 
Um, and over time, people broke the rules. Um, and I think that that's kind of how it goes. You know, you break the rules on the fringes, you spice it up just a little bit. And then over time, you know, it changes and whatnot. And, and yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was something fun to uh, start out with because I thought it was really cool. Because there's also a, a lady that I heard recently talking about accents in the same way. And it's like, mm. um, so the Southern accent is a slowed down British accent or maybe a sped up or something like that. So she goes through like a couple regional accents and kind of makes sense of them through how we talk and where the, our languages came from and who settled where in the Americas and all that kind yeah. of thing. So I thought that was, that's kind of interesting. This is a little post-edit clip I found of this theory or this lady. So here we go. But the primary reason, uh, most people don't realize that the American Southern accent is not a sign of ignorance, but actually the fact that, according to linguists, we're the only people left in the United States who generally still sound like our ancestors. Because if you listen to native-born Southern speakers, the average Southerner tends to sound more like this, what we call this Moonlight Magnolia's Draw, because if you speed up that Southern draw, over time it rapidly becomes a British accent. Most people don't realize that people that came here from Europe were largely from the United Kingdom. So when they got here, this was more along the lines of their speaking tones. But that's the first and second generations coming off the boats, not their children. By the third and fourth generations, the kids don't quite sound like mum and dad anymore because they're starting to develop a slight elongation of the way they talk. What's today called the Virginia Tidewater accent? It's not a complete southern drawl because that's a port area. But as you go farther into the southern interior and the years progress, the accent tends to get thicker, deeper, richer by Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia. Heck yeah, you got a full-blown southern drawl. But people don't realize that in most cases in Louisiana, Many of the native speakers don't sound like that. They tend to sound like this, I guarantee. Spell around the bayou. Because you speed up that South Louisiana Cajun Creole accent, over time it becomes en français, French. With, of course, certain exceptions in New Orleans, which tend to sound like more like New Yorkers because of the Irish and the Sicilian-Italian influence. So they tend to sound a bit more like this. And people tend to get a little confused because they think, what, you're from New York? No, nah, I'm from New Orleans. Why? So you have to realize that at the end of the day, Southern speakers, like I said, we're not ignorant as it's often been assumed, but we simply sound like the ancestors that came here so many years ago. No, well, I totally true, but... buy it. I mean, one thing it strikes me is, uh, well, country music versus like city music, like country music. Um, and people talk about this, like country music is kind of similar to rap music and they actually share a lot of similar origins and they're both kind of storytelling music. So it's mostly rural or poor people telling stories about their experience. Um, now the music has a little bit different quality, but, uh, I've been chipping up rocks from dawn till noon. I'm a writer, hide my bottle in the other room. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, but I think it's, you know, the pace for one, like country music, uh, it's a little slower on average, you know, rap music is a little faster, kind of like city, cities are a little faster, you know, than the rural parts or whatever. It's interesting. Uh, kind of interesting. And also one thing I would say is like modern music, like you hear this really edgy techno modern music sometimes in music schools and whatnot, where they'll experience with or uh, experiment with technology in the music. And I got to tell you, you will never hear that in like 
not the city and the music school and whatnot. Yeah. So. I see. That's what I was saying. I'm really opinionated about art. Like I can be, I'm like very, I can be very moved by music and even art or whatever, but it ha- I've like, I don't know. I have no refined, I'm no sommelier of music, but I'm really not a fan of like a banana peel nailed to a wall and calling that yeah, art. I'm yeah. like, that's, no, that's a sin. I think that's an anti-truth. I think there's a movement in art, uh, and I don't think it's conscious sometimes, but I think people literally make shit like it's actually bad, like it's garbage, like literally garbage. I think people garbage. have shit in a can yeah. and been like, this is art. Right, and then they call it art, which is like you're calling something that is definitely not beautiful, beautiful. Like this is beauty, like this is art. And so I think there's something perverted about that like and I think it so speaks to the culture because Mm. it's like it's just what I say it is like and even things that are the opposite of what I say can be what I say they are and I think that that is like something unconscious in our culture right now and I think you see a lot of that in like our literal art like if you go to like you know modern art museums you're like a lot of this is actually garbage like literally it's garbage sometimes like put up like into like weird displays they put these sculptures and stuff outside of these like agenda 21 developments or whatever they are they're like mall slash apartment slash fake turf grass slash like uh the collection around here or the avalon or whatever like just housing developments or whatever they're like city housing things but like oh like shopping eat play shop kind of thing yeah and it's like they'll put these things outside of the like at the entrance and it's supposed to be art but it looks like literally like crumbled up scrap metal and you're like Mm. why the fuck did you put this here and then if you like go research some of that stuff and be like where did that come from it's like paid for by taxpayers and it was like 40 gajillion dollars for this literal garbage that somebody welded a a pole onto and set it in concrete you know you're like what yeah no it's literally insane i don't and what's the intention behind all that i don't know there is there's some like people that believe there's like connections between i don't know what the real connections are but they'll be like the cia is behind like modern art or something oh, that's some kind of intentional sure there's always conspiracy theorists yeah no i think it's just like a movement like i think when i'm i'm very much of the jordan peterson mind like i think when the culture is possessed by sort of a set of ideas it can look like a conspiracy but it doesn't need to be coordinated like ideas like memes you know like they spread without necessarily anybody intentionally thinking like i'm going to spread this message like they just sort of infect the mind and that can be unconscious like you can be a vehicle for a message that you don't even really believe like you just you know caught it or whatever talking about it and so i think yeah with the art stuff it's like that to me where i see this movement toward like yeah just kind of what i said a second ago where we're calling things that are not beautiful, beautiful. And it's like the extreme tolerance that we've sort of talked about. Like it's sort of the the wanting to do away with the judgment virtue. And so you don't want to judge good from bad, beautiful from ugly. And so you're like, even like the fat movement, like putting that woman who was overweight, like on the cover of the sports magazine. And I'm not saying that 
that like any anything about that woman. You know, like I don't want to judge her, but that is She's not probably a fine human. Yeah, that's not the virtues of beauty. The virtues of beauty are like the things we've carved into stone. It's like like literally being overweight is bad for you, like bad for your health. Right. And that's why it's not beautiful, I think. It's like it's not good. You know, like and those are harder it's not health. to make, though. Yeah. It, but they do. I feel like they quickly I feel like for one on one side, that's why the conspiracy take on so many things is such a like useful narrative, because at some point you do it's that that only comes the conspiracy comes in for me a lot of times like it doesn't take a conspiracy for me to look at that sculpture and go, what? Like, what is that? That's horrible. Like, it looks like trash yeah, is outside yeah. of this place. So there's no conspiracy. But then when you when you go like, how or why did is that there? Then you it's like you just hit a brick wall. You're like somebody like I don't like, literally like how and why would anybody like look through a catalog of art or sculptures right. and be like that one, this one, this one right here is so pretty or so so what? Like, so good? Like, what do you, what is the thing about that that caused this? Same with the fat people on like beauty magazines. It's like, I can understand that more so because there's so much like marketing and stuff associated with it. Mm-hmm. But still you're like, who, who's doing that? So again, that's why I think the conspiracy is like narrative can be so useful because it makes you go, yeah. it's easy to be like, hey, see how this is bad? And you like it's something wrong here. It's a it's the a good a first easy step to take is to be like somebody did that, and it's like a assaulting your countenance, you know, like or your your conscience. Your, your yeah, it's like an assault on you a little bit, and you're like, yeah, it is. Like, well, because there's something not true about it, and I think that's the part that really gets me is like, you know, it's not like I do believe that we want inclusivity like and we want you know people to feel as a part of their society whether or not they live up to the ideal like I don't think you know people who don't look like the ideal image should be shunned or excluded from society but that doesn't mean we don't all celebrate and relish in the beauty of the ideal and that can be a unifying force like we don't if you try to celebrate it doesn't have to be uniform either well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't like only one thing is beautiful or something. You know what I mean? It's like a lot of people don't like red hair, but it doesn't mean that red hair is ugly. It's not like that's different than being like to be like, here's a a model yeah. with red hair. Like, and that's one thing. And it's, there's nothing. Well, that's a good way to put it too. Cause I think that's the other thing to point out is like, I think when we're like, we need to put fat people on the in the places where we're celebrating physical beauty, it's like, well, no, like, but physical beauty isn't the only virtue, isn't the only thing that's beautiful. Like people who don't look like that can have other virtues that may be, you know, really great to celebrate. Like maybe they're really wonderful, beautiful people in some other way and we should celebrate that virtue about them. And they could be, you know, beautiful in ways that the, person who's physically beautiful is not. And so, yeah, I just don't think we need to, yeah, be so like, 
I don't know, I feel like it gets condensed into like, it's all this, you know, it all comes down to physical beauty and we need to put the yeah. people who are not physically beautiful up there too. And why include, why, so it's like all in this inclus, inclusion and diversity, but it's like, yeah. I don't, I just don't understand why. I'm like, why, not like why include fat people at your dinner party, you know, but like why have a movement, like why are we doing that? Like why are, not, not, again, not the dinner party thing, but like why, why is there like a movement to be quote unquote inclusive to overweight people and like why is there a fat is beautiful yeah. like i'm just confused well, i don't understand I... why it, it is beautiful like why are you saying that like what what's the agenda what's the motive or the motivation yeah. behind saying that i mean i think at some basic psychological level it's just to do away with judgment like i think people we're in a time where people are being told that your judgment is something bad something you need to do away with and you don't need to judge. Who are you to judge what's good or what's bad about this? Like, you're so biased. You're so racist. You're so prejudiced. You know, everything is, everyone's okay. Everything's fine. You know, it's like that extreme moral relativism or slippery slope. And it's like, no, it, like we do have to draw the line somewhere. Like, we do have to say that this is better than that. And this is acceptable. And this is unacceptable. You know, like, and I It's probably I think, all marketing. It's always like down to a product or something. <laughs> it's probably, like, yeah, a lot of it is that. Fat people are beautiful too. Look at this fat lady on the front of this magazine wearing, you know, $50 underwear and $75 worth of lipstick and whatever other things they put on them. You know, it's like, so if you can convince fat people that they can be beautiful too, if you could stay fat, because being not fat's difficult, but wearing... XXL Victoria's Secret and uh, Laura Mercier, well, I don't know, whatever the popular makeup is, makeup, like that's, that makes you see, you can do that too because you're also beautiful. Whereas maybe a heavy person in the past wouldn't have put so much effort. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if that's part mm. of it. I don't know. It's just interesting. Maybe, maybe it's yeah, all maybe. Products. <laughs> yeah, they're pandering to larger people. Yeah, you're actually being used. <laughs> like, you think it's like, oh, they're celebrating you, but it's like, actually, no, they're using you. They're trying to sell you more product. And... They, they just want you to buy <laughs> oh overpriced garments. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, no one needs this makeup, okay? No one needs these garments. Just move on with your life. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down in that. But yeah, no, I think I just, uh... our virtues can be multiplicitous. You know, there can be different virtues that we celebrate. But I think, yeah, we do need to draw the line somewhere. And I think... It's dangerous to call our virtues, to call not virtues, virtues. Like, it would be like putting a lazy person up on a pedestal for someone that you, like a pedestal for responsibility or something. And it would be like, what? Like, that's not responsible. You know, like, that's laziness. And I feel like we're doing that in certain ways where we're like, this is beautiful. And it's literally not beautiful. And you're like, I think you're trying to confuse people. Or I think you are confused. Or I think you feel that you don't fit into the virtue and you would like to expand the circle of the virtue and like artificially, you know, change it or something. And it's like, no, you, I mean, you can't change the virtues. Like, I mean, you may not feel like you fit into the ideal, but that doesn't mean you can just change the 
ideal by fiat, just by words, and then you'll fit into it. You know, it doesn't really work like that. Like, you have to do the change. You have to do the hard work of, like, becoming a better person, you know. Yeah, yeah, some more off-shouldering of yeah. responsibility. Anyway, anyway, okay. Anyway, Montana's house uh, gave final passage Friday to a bill banning the social media app TikTok from operating in the state. I heard about this. I don't know how they're going to enforce it. I just think it's logistically impossible. Well, it's going along with this restrict act that is so odd. They're calling it the TikTok bill or like the banned TikTok bill or something. But it's like clearly not about TikTok. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting because like the ban, the restrict act like makes it like you can go to like jail for having a VPN which is odd because like every podcast I listen to runs an ad for ExpressVPN. Yeah. So millions of people are using these and now we're going to, you know, so it's just odd because I mean, on one side I'm like, it's not about TikTok at all, obviously. And then at the same time, there's people in Montana outside of that legislation, just banning TikTok as if TikTok is a concern. It's just so strange. It's Wait, so, strange. so this, this act, what is it? The Restrict Act. And it's everything... that's what's going on in Montana to ban TikTok? That's the piece I think of legislation? It's a, no, I think it's a totally separate thing. Like the Restrict Act is like on a national oh. level, but then just like randomly Montana's like, no more TikTok here. And it's like, what is going on? Like there's, it's so, it's such a... Wait, how are they connected? Scam. The Restrict Act and the banning of TikTok in Montana. I think they're connected because everyone's calling the Restrict Act, acting, talking about the Restrict Act as, as if it's about TikTok, because China's gonna influence you and influence oh. elections, and they're oh. always talking about how in China there's like time limits and they're only allowed to show certain content that's like edifying and mm-hmm. intellectual and et cetera, et cetera. According to some governing body. Right. Yeah. And then here it's like, so they're acting like that Restrict Act, which has almost nothing to do with TikTok, is about TikTok exclusively, when clearly that's just a bullshit story. And then at the same time, though, <clears throat> you have this state house that's like, no, do ban TikTok. And we are banning TikTok separately on our own. It's just odd. Oh, interesting. I'm not read up on how the me, me either. Yeah, Restrict Act ties in but that is weird i don't know how you would even ban vpns like every company that i've ever worked at uses vpns like for business you know they all require you to use the vpn to get onto like secure company stuff so that doesn't even make any sense to me why you would ban vpns well i think like there might have been a nuanced approach where it's like if you access Inform like you would only be kind of like found out if you like accessed not acceptable information. Oh my god! You know, wow, with, that's scary. It's, with it, and it's like that is so unbelievable. It's like the uh, Internet Patriot Act for the Internet or something. You know, like it's just mm. ridiculous. And the Patriot Act was that wasn't that all the stuff that came down like after nine eleven that 
is completely useless and comp- nothing but security theater in like airports. We got like take your shoes off and all this stuff. And you've had like researchers since then. And now you got to go through the radiation machines and all this and wait days in line just to get through the security. And you've had like these researchers go through security with like guns and explosives and stuff and made it through just to prove a point. And it's like, so they don't stop anything. And I don't even know if they've, I think, I think they've stopped like zero anything with all of the security theater measures that they've implemented. And by the way, Oh, well, I don't know. I don't either, but I was going to give like them Atlanta. You have like the workers there, you know, they're like low caliber. Like they decided to quit working at McDonald's and come work at the airport. You know? They're just hanging out. Sure. I was going to say, I don't know about the security theater stuff. I mean, part of it might be effectual in like, it has a deterrence effect. So people, maybe it doesn't do well at screening for bombs or guns when they go through, but maybe people, who would have brought those things through or onto the plane otherwise aren't now that there's all this theater. So I could see that there's that sort of deterrence effect. Um, And I think maybe there's probably some studies on that, that there is some effect. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder about this TikTok stuff because I just don't think a ban is the right way to go. I think it's getting a lot of traction because... Is there anything that needs to happen? Like, it's like, why... Who even... Like, who cares? It's a social media platform. Like, who even... Like, nothing needs to happen. Just nothing needs to happen. <laughs> like, what, well, what are we even doing? I mean, maybe something should happen, but it's like... it's. I'd rather if, China get my information than my own government because China's not going to do anything to me. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like it's just so selective. It's like there are so many things on the Internet that we might have thought are causing real harm. If that's the argument, if it's like it's causing so much harm that it needs to be banned. Yeah, well, Facebook, that Instagram. threshold, yeah, has been cleared by so many other things that it's like, I don't know. And then the other thing to me is like the banning is just I just don't think that's a proper that's not a democratic value to ban things, you know, like that doesn't fit into our American system, like just outright saying you can't have this. I understand being like, maybe we should make this more costly or something. Like maybe we should help people like the kind of behavioral nudge economics thing. Like, you know, if it really is bad for teens, like, but it's like, oh, cause teens are spending so much time on it. Maybe we should think about how can we get teens to spend less time on it? Not, how can we just outright ban this thing? But why thing? would the government have anything to do with that? I just don't understand that. I'm like, why don't you just raise your children right? Like, if it's a problem, mm. that, you know what I mean? Like, I just can't, I am, it is such, it's like the last thing that I would come to in my mind. Like, oh God, people are spending so much time on social media. It's making them weird and problematic. Mm. The government should help. It's like, what? That's like, it's like that old saying, the four most terrifying words in the English language. I'm from the government. I'm here to help or something like that. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a lot more than four words, but you get it. I mean, it does seem like you need community action to overcome the network effect because partly I think the reason why teens and other people are on these things is because everyone else is on them. And so there's some yeah network effect at play. And so in order to combat that, I think you do need collective action. Like you can't 
just individually decide you're going to get off TikTok because all your friends are still going to be on it. And so what happens to that child? Are they just lonely now? Are they just an outsider? And so I think you need like community action, but it would probably be best, like you're saying at the local level to be like, this community is saying, hey, you know, the parents are going to get together. Like the PTO already does get together and be like, maybe we should, you know, limit our kids on TikTok or we should, you know, send our kids outside every day, be like without their phones, you know, you got to play, I don't know, whatever they want to do, like whatever they think is best parenting wise um, and, and do it together because that's, I think, really what you need. But I don't think, yeah, best to rely on the government for that community action. You could just do it locally. Well, I mean, in community action, it's com- any community is composed of individuals and without the action of the individual, there is no community action at all. So, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Interesting. I, uh, yeah, I guess I'm always suspicious of these sorts of things. I just suspicious of any government action where they're like, we're doing X. And then you look at the bill and you're like, what else is hidden in this bill, though? Like, what, what is this really about? Like, what provision are we sneaking in here so that someone can get a bunch of money or what? I think this bill was written a long time ago and they just threw the term TikTok on top of it. You know, I mean, right. so here I just found this thing. It says, would the Restrict Act, a.k.a. the TikTok ban bill, criminalize the use of VPNs? Reasons Elizabeth Nolan Brown asked of the potential impact on virtual private networks that shield Internet users' identities and locations. The answer is, in many cases, yes, but wait, there's more. The Restrict Act, proposed by Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, and a list of co-sponsors, including Senator John Toon, uh, Republican, I guess South Dakota, doesn't even mention TikTok or parent company ByteDance or even social media. Instead, it hands the whole lot of power to the government, particularly the security of commerce. What? To review and prohibit certain transactions, certain transactions between persons in the United States and foreign adversaries regarding information and communication technology. The bill's text states in part the secretary in consultation with the relevant executive department and agency heads is authorized to and shall take action to identify deter disrupt prevent prohibit investigate or otherwise mitigate including by negotiating entering into or imposing and enforcing any mitigation measure to address any risk arising from any covered transaction by any person with respect to any property Subject to the jurisdiction of the United States that the secretary determines, dash, one, poses an undue acceptable risk of, and then it launches into a list of presumed horribles involving information and communication technology products, critical infrastructure, digital economy, a federal election, national security. It includes vague authorization of action to counter coercive or criminal activities by a foreign adversary that are designed to undermine democratic processes and institutions or steer policy and regulatory decisions in favor of the strategic objectives of foreign adversaries. So basically, Hmm. it sounds like complete and total digital slavery. Well, I don't know. I mean, that last bit, if it's like really just to prevent foreign influence, I could see how maybe that would be well-intentioned, but the provisions... The powers it seemed to give the government seemed so intense, like they have the power to regulate all sorts of things. The occurrence of the word any is a little excessive. 
yeah. any risk, any person, any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States is like, so anything ever at all on the internet? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. And it's like up to who, like who decides whether things fall in or out of line of this policy. And I guess ultimately, yeah, at some point it could be a like court decision. Like if it's, you know, goes to trial or whatever for improper policy uh, enforcement or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we just went through COVID where we started out with a narrative. And if you went against it, you were literally almost physically removed from the internet and then by the end of the bullshit, those people's narratives became the mainstream narrative. And where are they now? Are they still banned? Of course they are. Yeah, I don't know. You can't trust these fucking people. It is just... weird. I mean, to me, just how like calling it the TikTok act and then TikTok is not mentioned in the law at all. That like that just seems all too common a thing. Fucking like scam. The Freedom Act or whatever, like after nine eleven, like yes, they exactly. called something the, the Freedom Patriot Act. Act. Yeah, and then it was like about restricting individual freedom. It's and you support weird. it because you're a patriot and you love freedom, right? So we have to do all these restrictions to free you. <laughs> it's like more marketing. Help you. Yeah, it's literally like fat is beautiful. Freedom is slavery. <laughs> yeah, slavery is freedom. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. God, it's depressing. It's worrisome. Um, yeah. You know, I was watching Harry Potter this weekend. Um, the I went on a little binge, and I watched the past couple episodes, the last couple episodes, uh, or episodes, they're movies. I don't know why I'm calling them episodes. Because everything's a, an extended yeah. movie now. But I watched, series, yeah. yeah, like five, six, and seven. I've seen them all. But, man, I have not watched these in a long time. And they are so symbolic. Like, it is oh, yeah. crazy how symbolic these stories are. Also, interesting side note. Did you know that J.K. Rowling wrote the first, at least, Harry Potter when she was, like, basically homeless? No, I also don't know if I trust that she wrote those books in the first place, at least oh. single-handedly, but that's just an opinion, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It, I mean, it, it was pretty out of nowhere, and she became a billionaire, and it was a lot of writing very quickly. Uh, but it's yeah. possible. Well... I can't. I want to look up the how it happened, but uh, yeah, she was like down on her luck. She wasn't doing well, and she was like writing it on napkins or whatever. Um, It's a really incredible story. Because paper's so expensive. I don't know. Look it up. But she, uh, yeah, she was just not doing well, I think. And she was like, I got to write this book. And she had a daughter or a child or something. Anyway, I just thought it was very interesting because of the... To me, it fit in line with some of the things I've heard about. Like, Young documented this, how homeless people or the discontents of society, the people, you know, kind of on the streets, the vagrants, whatever you want to call them, they would say, perceive the world in really symbolic ways. I think I've mentioned this before. 
Um, and so I thought it was very interesting that J.K. Rowling was like not, you know, at a point in her life where she was not conventionally doing well, fitting into society, and then wrote this very symbolic story that kind of like comes out of her unconscious in a way. That's what Young proposed about the vagrant speaking in these symbolic terms, like something comes straight out of your unconscious. And then I watched the movies, and I had been a long time since I've watched them, and I just picked up so much of the symbolism more now than I did. Like, there's definitely... Harry Potter is, like, a Jesus sort of archetype, and Dumbledore mm -hmm. is, like, God the Father. And then it's interesting because Hogwarts is, like, a university, and it's really dark, like, when you think about the last episodes of Harry Potter, because... Basically, there's Episodes. like a war. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> the best shows, movies of Harry Potter. Um, there's like a war between people at the university. And so you think about it, it's kind of like a war of ideas almost. Like these people are being, you know, conveying these spirits of, you know, goodness and darkness. And they're warring it out literally at a university. And the the dark thing about it is that like children are involved. Like, so it's like, if this is a place where children are educated, children are brought up, and that's where the war is happening. Like, there are adults killing children, there are children fighting other children. It's very intense and dark. And, uh, and yeah, and then the Hogwarts professors, they're like, they almost represent like a pantheon of archetypes to me, like good and light. And they're kind of not the characters you identify with in the same way that the Lord of the Rings, like, you identify with the hobbits, like in Harry Potter, like you identify with the children, like those are the people in the story who are like actual people who struggle with, you know, goodness and light and they their abilities, you know, are limited. Whereas, you know, the the professors are sort of godlike and whatnot. And in that way, I think J.K. Rowling is like, they are like, whether she meant this consciously or unconsciously, it's like they are sort of these archetypes, these ideals, um, these spirits, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, and it's just, yeah, it was so deep and interesting to me now. And then, uh, yeah, the last thing I'll say, just, I'm just making some random observations about Harry Potter now. Um, the color symbology really intrigued me. So the the dark magic, the Avada Kedavra, whatever, like the killing spell in Harry Potter is green and all of the dark magic seems to be green. And then the light magic is, so the green is opposed to red. Um, and I thought those were very interesting color choices because green is often used to depict evil. Um, it is? Oh, okay. The Wicked Witch of the West was green. The Wicked Witch of the West in Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent is green. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Also in, uh, what are some other things that are green that I was thinking of? Um, like evil. I think there's like a connection between evil like the and potion, green. like evil, like scary potions and mad scientists is like the green bubbling liquid with like green smoke coming out of it. Yeah. So there's something toxic looking stuff, toxic yeah. waste. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the green goblin. Um, mm. so green, yeah, has some connotation with evil. And then I think red uh, has some connotation with goodness. To me, you know, you could think about like red being blood. I feel like, like that's blood. not true anymore, though. Oh, interesting. I mean, because like I would think like the devil's red. Mm, I think red, yeah, can be associated with with the devil. 
sometimes in that way. Like, but I think it's like red, like fire is red, um, like hell is red. But uh, but red is also like blood to me, and I think that there's something sacrificial about red, like. Red is the life force, like blood is the life force. And so there's something interesting there. Um, and you have to sacrifice, like the good people have to sacrifice for, you know, what they believe in. They have to shed blood. But uh, yeah, so I was thinking green is just an interesting choice because it's not just in that movie that green represents evil. And I think that's what I kind of thought about. You were like, oh, that's not true anymore. Sometimes red is evil. And I was like, yeah, but it is weird that like green is evil in so many things because I think of green as like a good thing. Yeah, and, that's what I was saying. Like, yeah, I like I like green. Green, the trees are green. My garden, exactly. You know, <laughs> right. So that's it. Really made me wonder. I was like, why is it evil green? Oh, that was the other thing I was thinking about was the Matrix. So if you look at the Matrix, the scenes in the Matrix, like actually in the computer program in the fake world, those scenes hmm. are tinted green. And then in the real world, in the Matrix movie, they're the tinted Matrix blue. Is green, it's green text too right. in, the green, in the Matrix, yeah. Yeah, so there's something evil about that. And then I thought, well, what is green? Like, what's so bad about green? And I thought it was interesting because there's connotations of, just like you said, like the forest, like the green of spring, the green of growth, the green of greed, maybe. Mm. Like, mm. green is like overgrowth, like growth at all costs, like too much growth. Money um, used to be green. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's something interesting there where it is like, it was very interesting to me to note, like we think about spring and summer. Islam is green. What? Islam is green. Is it green? In the in the revelations, the uh, pale green horse is the horse of, is the one of the it's like represents death i think oh well there's different interpretations of what it actually says but pale green is one of the potential colors of that horse and the four horses of death or whatever the pale green horse yeah interesting yeah so i just thought you know it's interesting because you have the the verdant green forests and that's like a sign of growth and that yet green is a a sign of evil. And I thought that that was, yeah, interesting to note. It's like growth at all costs, evil, you know. And I think there's something about like that too in The Matrix, like Mr. Smith, his policy is like growth at all costs. He's like a cancer to the system. You know, he wants to replicate himself over and over and over and he takes over all the the people, uh, all the programs in The Matrix. And so it's like a policy of overgrowth and, and that is evil and it's represented by green. And so I thought that was just very, very interesting and very relevant to our modern times, I think, is like... The fourth the fourth seal, the pale or green horse, dead people often have a green tinge to them. This is just something I found mm. on the internet. The Greek word is chloros, which means green. All the four horse riders control... Uh, only one quarter of the earth, the rider of this horse, has a given mm. name, which is death, and is followed by another rider called Hades. If we translate Hades into English, it would be translated as the world of the dead. Uh, Interesting. Well, that's, yeah, the four, like the four seasons almost. Like green is like spring or summer maybe. Um, but yeah, it's uh, 
And that was interesting that I thought that was kind of juxtaposed against seemingly blue and red. Those are like the good colors seemingly in uh, Harry Potter. And blue, what's good about that? I was thinking it's like, well, it's durable. Like the good, the true, the ultimate true is like the thing that is the most durable. And like the sky is blue and it's always blue. You know, like that's something symbolic to me. Um, and then the red, yeah, I've already talked about that. That was kind of like blood to me almost. But uh, yeah, just very interesting movies. And I did not pick up on the symbolism the last time I watched them. And I thought it was so crazy looking back now that we just had such a weird superficial debate in our culture about what those movies were about. Like I remember Christian people like literally my parents didn't want me to read the books because they thought it was witchcraft. And that is, I'm sorry, mom and dad, but that is completely <laughs> idiotic. Like you are reading it literally and it is obviously a very metaphorical story and symbolic. And if you look at it symbolically, it's actually very akin to like the Christian narrative. Like it actually shares the same messages as that story. And so you'd think you would actually be proponents of this story. Like, no, this is a good, this is an archetypal story that shows good defeating evil and is about one struggle with that and their journey and the sacrifices that must be made. And it's just, yeah, I felt like the narrative that we had culturally was completely the inverse. Like I feel like people were like, the Satanists want Harry Potter and the religious people want to ban it. And you're like, how did it ever get so twisted? Like, what? <laughs> this is like a Christian narrative. But during that time in our lives, <clears throat> you did get one of those books and you were allowed to read it, but you were smart. So maybe there was something about, look, Ben's reading a big book. I don't know. But Well, someone changed their mind. I remember mom and dad were against it. And then dad changed his mind and thought. Yeah, I had to throw away my freaking Pokemon cards because, you know, we're related and have the same parents. <laughs> and I found that to be uh, distressing, to be honest, because I had a holographic Japanese gem trained Raichu that I really liked. <laughs> And I had to throw them directly in the trash can. All of them. The whole book, you know, we used to have like binders full of Pokemon cards. But, and they, and you know, a lot of the reasoning was like it's pocket monsters. That's like what it meant or something like that. So yeah. it's like evil. It's like bad. And mm -hmm. as a kid, I bought into a lot of that. Like I kind of, I think I somehow was capable of like, maybe because of like, I'm like so smart-ish and or young at least when I was when I was younger you know like I had a fairly decent comprehension like in we had, used to have to do like reading comprehension stuff and I never was at a level that I should have been I was always reading at above level so I, I could oh, understand yeah. like conceptually to a certain extent what was going on I could, if it was explained to me why I could formulate some form of an understanding even at such a young age which looking back, I actually wonder oftentimes about that time in my life, like being that young, like I wonder, I kind of just wonder like, cause I can't remember very well, but I'm like, how well did I really understand things? Cause it seems like I may have understood things much better than I would think now looking back on it, I go, mm. Oh, I was a kid, but now I'm like, but sometimes I come across these kind of little things like this. Oh, like, that's super I interesting. I did actually, 
understand maybe more than I now would give myself credit for, which I always had a problem with this, by the way, side kind of sideline discussion here, but I, I would, okay, so debating whether or not I should say personal things. So when I was younger, I had some things happen. I, some whatever, you know, like everybody goes through shit and, um, I ended up going to, this is before I had the ability to like make my own choices about like whether or not I did this or that thing. So I had to go to parents were making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're going to go to therapy, you know, and so things, so people would say things like in therapy, it's very common, even like self-help stuff, whatever you were just a kid. It's not your fault. You didn't understand. I do remember as a kid that never flew for me. I'm like, that's not true. Mm. The only true statement is I'm young. And that to me never made sense that like, I'm young. Therefore I don't understand. I'm young. Therefore it's not my fault. I mm. never felt that to be true. And in fact, later in life, that was like one of my biggest struggles. Like it was one of the, I have let, let me not sell myself short here is one of the most intense emotional or psychological aspects of my life that I ever had to go through was psychologically, mentally, spiritually, whatever, situating that kind of narrative so that I could continue living without wanting to kill myself. And it was like coming to terms with the fact that like, you do bad, you did bad thing, whatever, bad thing happened, whatever. And coupled with, I don't believe anyone who says you were just a kid, you didn't understand, you don't know, whatever. And a lot of that stuff followed me through my childhood into my early adolescence and teen years. And it was mm. accompanied by extreme I guess you call it anxiety, but it really wasn't anxiety. It was more like an ex an intense depression that was accompanied by anxiety because of the level of depression. It was like untenable for me. I could not handle it. Mm. And the only real thing I ever figured out for myself was what I needed to get better and not be so depressed was time. Mm. And that, because I had this understanding that the further things were in my past, the less intense they felt. Mm. And if only I could, and then if I would fuck up again later, I would, I recognize this, a reset. So oh. now I'm shit. Mm. Now it sucks again. And so I'd have to stop that behavior, put it further in the past, wait, and then maybe hopefully I'll feel better. And that was like one of the hardest things I ever had to deal with. And somehow I actually got a lot better at this. Thank God. Cause I would have killed myself because I can still have glimpses of that to this day, but the, I can dispense with the feeling mm. much quicker somehow. I don't know. And it, it actually makes me worried. Like if things ever changed for me and were like less comfortable and I had more 
things to be sad about. Like if mm. I was, you know, lost everything and I had to be on my own and I was more lonely, like maybe I'd all that would come rushing back. I don't know. Uh, what was it that you were talking about that made well, me say this? That's really interesting. I do. Yeah. So, well, one thing I wanted to say is uh, it reminds me of like seeing as child or children see like to have the eyes of a child, that sort of thing. Like Pokemon cards. Right? Yeah. Okay. Continue. Almost. Yeah. Children have a, a way of perceiving the world that's unjaded by all of the connotations and thought and cultural ideas that come along with things and ideas as you you know live longer and so they almost perceive things more readily as they are and i think that that's yeah you when you were saying like oh i i kind of did understand as a kid um i thought that was interesting because i think yeah in some ways you do understand more kind of like the harry potter thing like i think maybe as a kid you just perceive it as the story that it is like a symbolic story of like a hero overcoming and battling with darkness and having to sacrifice and whatnot. Whereas like an adult can see it through all these like contextual connotative lenses and be like, Oh, that's, that's wands. And that's, that's witches and that's witchcraft and witchcraft is bad because the Bible said, you know, and so you see it through all these weird like distortions and you don't really see it as it is um, just on the face of it without any of the, you know, context and all of these other ideas that are attached to it in your mind and and whatnot. And so I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, I wanted to ask you more about what you were just saying, because it is really interesting to say I did know better. Like even as a child, I knew whatever was happening wasn't right. Um, because that is tricky, because I think on some level we think, yeah, children, they haven't had a lot of experience. They can't, you know, they're not developed in the virtue of judgment to dispense with what's wrong and and know what's right. But in some sense, the sense of what is wrong is right and right is already there. Like children already have a sense of morality, but maybe they don't have, judgment isn't a virtue that's been fully developed in them. I mean, you do have to discipline children because they do things that are bad, they don't really maybe understand the consequences of their action because they haven't had enough experience, or maybe they've never tried that particular action and even experienced the consequences of it, but maybe you do know. So this, what are your thoughts? This is really interesting because I think we're answering a question that we asked at the beginning of the podcast. So like, why is this fat thing, like why is fat beautiful all of a sudden? Let's change it from fat. And I'm going to cut out from our last podcast all the trans conversation, I think, because I'm so fucking tired of it. But this is an interesting point because you still might ask yourself, where is this coming from for people? Let me attempt at an answer, on a, an answer that is less conspiratorial and more along the lines of what you would probably see as palatable. Hmm. So we have... Let's meet let's in the middle. Let's change it. Let's say... Without, I don't want to like say what happens. What like I don't want to say my own experiences yet because I don't know. Sure. If I want to do that on this podcast yet, <laughs> but you probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I think so. So when I was really, really young, pre-kindergarten, young, like preschool, daycare, young, mm -hmm. I had 
different experiences that continued on for uh, some time. And I will admit, I don't know where they came from, but they did fuck me up. And I'm not like doing the whole, it's not my fault, mental illness, wah, I don't give a shit. But here's an example. So Milo Yiannopoulos, do you know who that is? He's some he's a really weird public figure that I don't recommend anybody explore in any way. But he's mm-hmm. he had been a super gay dude that was famous and at some point, especially in his rise to real prominence, was very right wing. It's like a hardcore Trump supporter, I think, that kind of thing. Kind of a little bit of an anomalous guy. Gave him a very interesting marketing tactic. You know, I'm going to be like, like almost Jeffree Star level gay and also go around campaigning for Trump. Just weird, you know, very Mm. right. Anyways, and now, by the way, totally unrelated, but now he's like gay, but decides he's not going to participate in that anymore because he thinks it's wrong. Mm. But he's, he's like, it's like the right thing. God, I don't know. I don't exactly know his full explanation for that, but it is interesting. It's interesting. And I understand it and I relate. So Mm. that's not the point though. The point is he was one time canceled because he was explaining to Joe Rogan something about like his younger days, how he became gay or things or like what happened to him young and et cetera, et cetera. And one of those stories was that he uh, had, and he he was claiming this is very common for quote unquote, again, he would probably use different terms now, but at the time, you know, younger gay boys, men, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that very often they get, they find or have a older man that is what we would now call someone who's grooming them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to some extent. I find this to be very true because I was somewhere one time older, but still young probably 18, 17, 18. And I was in a place, it was like a home, kind of like a halfway house type of place. And there was a guy that was, and he later got really heavily outed and kicked out of being allowed to come around this place anymore because it was all all men, all boys and men at this place. It was like a men's rehab center or whatever. It was like a rehab thing. So very, very heavy in the... People had all sorts of issues, but a lot of drug, but that comes along with a lot of other shit Mm -hmm. all the time or very often. So as you're very, one might say, vulnerable in that kind of situation, you're like trying to get your shit together, your life. Mm. Sometimes you're there because you're like, this is the only way to keep you out of prison. Your family is disowned. You, You know, all sorts of things going on. And this guy was older truck driver who was something like gay. I don't know exactly, mm. but he was very old, very much so older than everyone there. So except for maybe like one guy. So he was like in his fifties or sixties and there's this thing in AA and alcohol and addiction where you have like a sponsor mm. who like helps you 
through the 12 steps. That's And then once you get through the 12 steps, you become sponsored. You help other people. That's part of your recovery. Mm. Except for he wanted to see your dick and stuff, you know? Mm. And wanted to, like, see your abs and yeah, la, 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 all that shit. Creepy and old was, man. And he was really on my case big time. Mm. So this is why I'm saying I understand where Milo's coming from on some level. That was a little bit older for me. Mm. Now, rewind back to being younger and what Milo was saying to Joe Rogan. And so the way Milo talked about this older guy was in a very positive light, you know, like almost saying like this was a positive experience that I'm glad I had Mm. and I'm glad he was there, et cetera, et cetera. So that so so eventually that ends up canceling him, getting him canceled because it's kind of morphs in the public discourse into like you're saying that like borderline pedophilia and grooming is acceptable. Mm. This is an interesting dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. So now the way that Milo was thinking about this was along the lines of, okay, here there's a notion there, something like acceptance, right? So what is this? Why would you not hate this older person as a younger person? Why hmm. would this be a positive experience for you? And it's because you have interesting inclinations or proclivities. And this person is telling you, this is okay. This is good. This is acceptable. I'm older. I'm successful. I do these things. The whole story, whatever, becomes some kind of positive experience for you. Mm. So when I was younger, without saying exactly what was going on with me, particularly with multiple different occurrences, different people. It's not like I had a single groomer or anything like that, but I had something that I can relate to with as far as this kind of, I'm using Milo's public story as like a proxy. Mm. And then there's this whole therapeutic approach that, you know, you go through like, it's, it's okay. Like if you don't like it, don't do it. If you don't want this to happen, don't let it happen. You're young. You don't understand. Yeah. All this Mm. stuff. And at the same time, you're like, I do kind of understand. I, and I don't know chicken or the egg here. What comes first? The knowledge of what should make you feel guilt or shame or whatever, or the story. So that would be the story first, or do you have this natural thing in your nature that said that you something happens or you do something or you experience something and then you feel bad and you don't know why and then the story comes later i don't know which one happened for me but somehow i knew because what happened for me was i exposed the situation it was Mm. like hey this thing happened and then there was like interesting questions being asked like what what do you mean how did that happen why did that happen you know, and you mm. think about it and you're like, I don't know. Were you forced? Were you not forced? As a kid, my situation felt, this is why I'm using Milo as an example. It didn't feel like I w- anyone had done anything against me. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It may as well have been my decision. Like no one I coerced did. you or... Right. I may have done mm-hmm. it. And then after the occurrences, I may have... It may have been seen in not necessarily... I would not say by by me, but I, I mean, yes, by me, but I would not say that I would have characterized it as a good, positive experience. In fact, it was... 
causing me great anguish. Mm. But at the same time, it was like, it was like, do you want to do it again? Would you do that again? Would you let that happen again? Mm. And the answer may have been yes. I, this is, I'm trying to remember like being fucking five and six and seven and eight and you know like it over some years that i can't really remember that well yeah so so translating that into what's going on in our culture now it seems like there's a particular approach that's being taken and it's like imagine a world full of people that all had this experience and it's traumatizing whether you did it to yourself or not just the feelings are traumatic the guilt, the shame, mm. the not understanding mm. what's mm-hmm. right, what's wrong, what's natural. And so now the mainstream approach is it is natural. It is okay. Being gay is the same thing as being straight. Being trans is the same thing as being gay or, or straight. Being anything, it's all good. It's all okay. Don't worry about it. Whatever you do, whatever you like, whatever mm. you are have a proclivity towards, this is all acceptable. It's accept it, accept it. It's just diversity. It's just inclusion. Include these people. And that, mm. I feel like, is why we are where we are in this regard and regarding this narrative currently is... And this is why I say it's less conspiratorial, more up your alley, some kind of collective conscience or collective experience people are having is very much so associated with the experience that I'm describing. Because I now, as someone who's who I am now, older, mm-hmm. I look back at all of the all of what's happening now, what happened then, and I will tell you. I still do not understand because I still don't, I still don't really know what any of it means. I still don't know, honestly, mm. if it's right or wrong to be anything other than the traditional understanding of what we are. I don't know if it's right or wrong to be gay or straight. I don't know. I don't mm. know if it's right or wrong to be trans or not trans. But I will say because my experience being young, there was no discussion of trans. There was plenty of discussion about being gay or straight or bi. By the mm. time I w- – so bi was like the new one for us. <laughs> like you could be <laughs> – That was the new this letter. One that one or this third one. You could be bi. And it was like there was – and then, of course, all the fears along with that. Where does it stop? One day you'll be saying men could be women. Well, no, no, that'll never happen. Well, lo and behold, it does. Mm. Because mm. what the solution has continued to be on, and is it's been a battle. Because in the 90s and 2000s, there was still a big struggle between traditional and the traditional whatever Mm-hmm. you understanding whether or not it was tied directly to a religious context or not whatever mm. and and uh and now here we are which needs no explanation but things are getting quite interesting and quite bizarre and quite weird and if it's anything other than all the conspiratorial bullshit yeah it's this it's this thing it's this thing where there's i think there's been a trauma culturally for individuals 
And that trauma, I do believe, has been propagated. So if you don't have the trauma personally, you now you'll get it vicariously. So you get it through being 10 years old and being handed a phone that has essentially mostly porn on it. Essentially, <laughs> most of the internet most, is porn. Yeah, it's just it's like it's like porn, and beyond that, it's all this messaging. Why are ten year olds just knowing whether or not they're men, boys, girls, all this shit? Because you're being traumatized by this stuff at such a young age. That's why I don't ever, I never developed an understanding because I experienced something too young. So I now say, mm. in certain in certain moments of clarity or confusion, whatever you'd like to call it, I would say, and I have been known to say multiple times, I don't believe in gay or straight. I don't, I mm. don't even have a belief on it. I have some inclination of something there. I look at natural order and try to use that to derive understanding. But the more that natural order is demonized and dismissed and science and all this other bullshit takes precedence over that kind of thing, you don't need any of that stuff anymore, according to mainstream society. In reality, like traditional values, you mean? Yeah, I mean, like the source of light. Oh, animals could be gay too. The source of light gives you cancer. Really, nature is not that great. It's actually harsh and trying to kill you all the time. Like this is kind of like the scientific evolutionary which it is kind of perspective. By the way. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I think most of what we know is storytelling and narrative. Mm, we don't mm -hmm. know shit about anything, to be honest. Because there's also the alternative, which is like you, sh you should be exposed to the sun as much as, you know what I mean? Like sunscreen's mm -hmm. actually the problem. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, there's a million, who whatever, it's all muddled. There's no sense of understanding of reality, of th the, the nature of things, the way of things. So I don't know. Do you, am I making any yeah. sense? Like it's a well, very complicated thing for me to even discuss and talk about, but. Yeah. So here's my thought on it. Cause it is, yeah. I feel similarly about such topics. Like for example, like, I don't believe that there is gay and straight and people are just, yeah, born into these identities. I think... Uh, we make choices. We have experiences. We get confused. We don't... We, yeah. we develop and things and, you know, it's kind of like... I think people are attracted to people um, and, you know... I think everyone's gay. Yeah, a little... I think... And nobody's gay. Yeah, there's like... Just relationships between people, and I think that those can take uh, all sorts of forms. Uh, and yeah, I think when you presuppose like all a person's relationships are going to take this form, like all of them are going to be man to man, or all of them are going to be woman to woman, or man to woman, or it's like I don't think that's true. I think people have relationships. Or with all even sorts now, of now it's like it could be anything. Like everyone is a blank slate. Yeah, and it's it's society has made you and if we can erase that as completely as possible, then everyone will just be born without all this shame, without all this guilt, without all these fitting pegs into certain holes and no pun intended. You know, like it's Yes. Yeah. And I feel like that and one thing we can observe is that the more that story is told, the more what I'm going to call weird shit, because 
I'll even if it's me doing it, it's still I still call it weird shit. It's no like, it's no. There's a judgment and there's no judgment at the same time. Yes. So that's but it's getting more. It's getting more and more and more for sure. The more we erase stuff that was there that perhaps helped guide something. Yeah. So that's what I think. To me, the answer, the way out to this sort of conundrum, this dialectic, perhaps like, is it right? Is it wrong? Is gay okay? Is straight correct? Approach. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think the way out is both. Like, it's judgment and grace. It's tolerance and judgment. And it's that, I think, is the transcendent ideal, the transcendent love that frees you. Like, Free, what, reco- And what happens when, once you're freed? Does everyone become... I think... Whatever blank slate. You do what's right despite your sin, despite your shortcoming. And I think that that is a really, that's going to sound really tough to people. Like, and, and let's, I, let me, can I throw in this? Yeah. My favorite verse from the Bible, Paul says, the things that I wish I would do, I don't do. The things that I wish I wouldn't do, that's what I do. There's another verse where he's talking to God and he says, I, who knows what this means? I think the vaguety, the vagueness of it is the beauty of the scripture. He says, I've plead with God to pull this thorn from my side. And basically God says, no. You deal, like basically you have to deal with that. Maybe Paul is gay. Maybe Paul hated women. It seemed like he did, to be honest. Sure. Based on some of his writings. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's some, so you can have even in the scripture that tells you that everyone says this is the thing that's supposed to shame you and mm. it's horrible and it tells you to kill gay people and all this crazy shit that it doesn't really say. What it actually says is like one of the most prolific characters in the whole fucking story is like, I got this problem in my side. I got this thorn in my side and I can't get it out and I don't want it anymore. I need it to be taken from me. God, please take this from me. It's killing me. It's causing me some kind of pain, mostly, obviously. Mm-hmm, it wasn't mm-hmm. a true thorn. He could just pull it out. It was some kind of psychological, spiritual problem. Mm-hmm. And God, according to Paul, says no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something really deep there. I think that that's like everyone, like I was saying before, falls short of the ideal. And you can only come to know the ideal in that you are discrepant from it. You are not the ideal, and so that is how you become aware of it. You know, you understand the discrepancies between you and what would be right. But now, how do you become closer to the ideal? And I think that that's where grace and love come in, and I think that's the tolerance. That's the message of diversity. You know, I think the genuine good message that people have there is like, no, everyone actually falls short and that that's okay. Like that no one is living the ideal. No one feels right, perfectly ideal. The extreme ideal. on one side or the other side seems wrong somehow. No yes, matter what. exactly. You think the, the, what we're experiencing now is wrong and the reaction is wrong, which is probably why when we talk about this trans stuff and get so worked up about it, that some, we hate, we can't stop ourselves talking about what's current, but we can't. We can't appreciate even our own opinion on it. 
because it's so reactionary and it flings us so far. Yeah, you. Yeah, I think you end up yeah animating like the counteractive spirit of something like too much tolerance. You become too judgmental, um, and I think you need both. And you know, something that comes to my mind is like this Native American saying or whatever. I can't even remember where it came from, but like the idea of like the wolves needing. Well, it was like a a hawk or a bird and it's like Mm. the left arm and the or the left wing and the right wing and like one of the wings is masculinity and one of the wings is femininity and it's like you need Mm. both to fly it's like the it's just a little silly thing but you know to me Mm. it's like it really is that like you can't operate in a society where you have complete tolerance and you can't move toward the ideal in a society of complete judgment because i think to your point, with just judgment, with just the thorn in the side, you feel just wrong. You feel messed up. You feel like you've just fallen short and that there's no hope for you, that you deserve to die maybe. And maybe that's what you were kind of saying earlier. It's like, I would have killed myself. And I think that that I is- still the, might. Yeah, I think that <laughs> that is the place a lot of people find themselves in. And I think the- and the, the antidote is a way out. That right. this new far, 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 whatever, look, let's call it left, whatever yeah. it is, progressive is like, oh, well, don't worry. Just do it. <laughs> right. And I think <laughs> you know? that in some sense is the antidote, but it doesn't replace the judgment. It comes with the judgment. It's like, no, that is still a thing. Like, there is still right and wrong, but that's okay. Like, that. Everyone is dealing with this and there's a transcendent, you know, quality to like your experience that it's okay to be falling short of the ideal and still affirm it. And I think that that's kind of the thing that resonates with me about like that guy you were saying, like, why is it that someone like uh, Tim Dillon is such an interesting character? At least I think, why does he resonate with so many people? He's a conservative gay guy. And I think, you know, kind of similar to the who's, guy you were describing. Who's unattractive and bombastic <laughs> and... Very worth, opinionated. And people will give him $80 million... Had a rags to riches story. ...on Patreon story. Yeah. just to hear him tell people how crazy shit is. Yeah. So why is that guy so interesting? And why it, does it resonate with Because he's a gay people? guy going, you shouldn't be gay. <laughs> You that's know, what like, I that's think. That's kind of like the vibe, you know? Yeah, that's what I think about it. It's like he represents a commitment to this transcendent quality of your experience that's like, look, I do not identify as straight. Like, I don't have straight feelings all the time or whatever, or I'm not, you know, this ideal. But that doesn't mean I think that my experience is the ideal. Like, I am not God. Like, God, the ideal lies outside of me and I am still like, I still bow to it. Like I still affirm it. I celebrate it. I think it's right. And I, you know, recognize my shortcomings. I'm okay with my shortcomings. And, uh, but yeah. And I I'm think- not, but, but at the same time, he's not out there going, my shortcomings should be your shortcomings and we should all forget that they're shortcomings and do what thou wilt. As yeah. you know, the Aleister Crowley quote, you know, it's yeah. like he's not, that's like the piece of his message that keeps him from being on 
you know, the, the, the Bud Light spokesperson or whatever, you know what I mean? He's not, he can't be the dominant narrative. Right. He has to, because he's not doing that. That's the thing he's not doing. Right. Yeah. And I, exactly. I just, and I don't know that you can even fully articulate what it means for you to do. Like, it's always interesting. Like even in the Harry Potter, back to that thing, you know, there's a conversation. Wait, before we go to Harry Potter, can I give you this quote? I cannot believe, it's like literally you already said it. And I didn't know that the continuation of the quote was literally verbatim what you said. Oh, you hear it? I mean, great. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, so this is the Paul thing. It's in Second uh, Corinthians 12. I'll just start at verse six. It says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think, oh my God, this is deep as fuck. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to start from the top and I'll, it's literally like four sentences. Okay. Mostly because the Bible hardly uses periods. But anyways, I must go, I must go on boasting, although, so this is literally second Corinthians 12. <clears throat> I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on uh, to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to the paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would be, uh, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these uh, surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, uh, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness in insults in hardships and in persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the verse. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. grace, as you were saying, yeah. is the... It's the antidote, is the, I think. the thing there. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's the two together. And it's not... I think the the problem with, like, the total leftism, like you were saying, is, like, two... It's not just grace. Like, it's grace and judgment. Um, but grace is the antidote to judgment. They say the thorn in my side is not... They, it's, like, it's not a messenger from Satan. It's, like, it's not even a weakness. Right. It's actually a virtue. Right. The thorn is the virtue. Whereas Paul's saying, very Tim Dillon like, perhaps, no, there's a thorn. And it's a thorn. And it's poking me in my side. And I'm like, I should get this out. And then I can't because I'm a person. Right. Right. So, and, and I, I could think... tell you great things about myself and how good I am. But. And I'd be right if I said I did a good thing and this was a good thing and I did it for this reason and the thing, the reason was good and all these things. But I have to tell you, this is a weakness. And in fact, this is what, this is where the strength, this is where the, it's like a, all good teachings are difficult, you know? Yeah. That's all the people that follow Jesus around constantly were going, we don't get it. Please explain it to us plainly. And he would go, how do you not get it? 
Like I'm literally like how much more, like, this is how, this is the, this is it. This is the, the answer is not, you can't put it into like an algorithm. Oh my God. It's, yeah. Speaking of thorns at the side, I literally have to pee so bad. My side's hurting. Hold it. I'll be right back. Thorn in my bladder. Literally. Oh. There's this article. Harry Potter banned from school library for including actual spells. What? What does it mean? I don't know. It's a strange article. If your smartphone is levitating, you may have just fallen victim to one of the spells contained in Harry Potter, the book series by J.K. Rowling that was recently banned from a Catholic school library in Nashville, Tennessee, amid fears that it contains actual curses and spells. Oh, my God. These people are ridiculous. That's just fake. Anyway. The book presents magic as both good and evil, which is not true, but in fact a clever deception. Oh, my God. It is. Jesus did miracles, okay? People, shut the F up. Like, of course magic is good and evil. Like, of co- like, what are you talking about? Okay, last says, couple of things. Hold it. Oh, go ahead. It's, wait, it says, the curses, this is a quote, the curses and spells used in the books are actual curses and spells, which when read by a human being, risk conjuring evil spirits into the presence of the person reading the text. And then that's My the end God. of the quote. That was from like whoever. This is so hokey. You know, and then the the person writing the article says, it's from Global News. Global News read several spells from the books out loud, but was unable to independently conjure any spirits, good or evil. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, idiots. Okay. A couple things. Uh, so one, I wanted to just say briefly on that, that like one of the interesting deep things that I forgot to mention earlier about Harry Potter is that when they talk about wands, one of the things they say is that the wand chooses the person. Like, mm. it's not the other way around. And I thought that that was very Jungian. Like, Jung thought you were the sort of... The thorn chooses you. Yeah, you're sort of animated by ideas and spirits. And you don't get to choose which spirits or forces you're animated by. And that... Yeah, I was going to say deep. that earlier yeah. with, like... So, my big symbolic symbolism thing the thing i like about big stories like harry potter <clears throat> right now i'm re-watching because i never i don't think i ever got all of it so i'm trying to watch it all the game of thrones mm. same thing with uh lord of the rings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. same thing even with like star wars like these yep. big kind these of very archetypal stories yep. yeah and one of the things that and this isn't just me like people obviously get hooked onto this and I don't know if they know why, but you see it all the time. You used to see it all the time. Like, which school are you from? Like Hufflepuff or Slytherin mm. or this or that. And there's these like types of, uh, there's like these types of people. So like in Lord of the Rings, it's like the elves and the, mm-hmm. the dwarves and the hobbits and the wizards and whatever. Mm-hmm or the different schools or the different kinds of magic or in game of thrones it's like the different places you can like be from like these people do this kind of thing it's like really you know they have certain virtues and certain vices um this family or mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. place has like these types of people so you end up with yeah like i think people it recognize those things you know in like as in like types of ways of being or things that you can kind of have that you Mm -hmm. relate to and that are almost not so much you, but almost where you're from or something a little 
You know, like you almost can't help it if you were born yes. in, okay. the no- in the north. You know, you just That's have very... this kind of thing. Yes. Okay. Because I... you have because the hat picks you in Lord of the Rings. Like you don't say I want to be in Slytherin. You actually might want to be in. You mean in Harry Potter? A different. Ha- yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you might want to be in a different school, but the hat says, "Well, you're like this." Right. Go, right. Well, I don't, but I'm not. And then sometimes it's very obvious, like the dickheads in Slytherin. They're very powerful. They seem like the rich kids, but they're also kind of dickheads, you know, and that's just what you are, you know, so anyway. Yeah, well, the thing I wanted to say that's very powerful about that is like you, I think what happens is that you, the transcendent love thing is like actually the suffering that you're experiencing is that you are identifying with the thorn in in your side. You are Mm -hmm. identifying with your shortcoming, with your sin, and that the transcendent love is actually... No, you are are more than that. You know, you are more than just your shortcomings. And that I think that's the interesting thing too to me about uh Harry Potter. You know, who is it that comes out to be the greatest hero, the greatest uh professor at at Hogwarts or whatever? And it's not Dumbledore, it's Snape. It's the per- it's the Slytherin who ends up having the greatest story in the, the one whole that everybody thing. thinks is the bad guy and he's evil and he must be trying to hurt people. Right, and because he does suffer, he suffers very deeply, and he he's dark. He's emo. He is he's dark, <laughs> but he he transcends this darkness, and actually, his darkness is his form of strength. You know, it it allows him and to defeat Voldemort and to defeat evil. Not just for him, but for all of them, you know, and that's, I think, very profound. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot to be learned from the Harry Potter story and series. And yeah, yeah. There's another, uh, uh, welcome to our Godcast. There's another <laughs> quote from the Bible. Oh my God, yeah. Um, that's really interesting. So we should relabel this as like a religion podcast. Yes, exactly. Um, Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Uh, Romans five and six. I'm going to cherry pick here. Uh, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's mm. love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. Um, also talks about, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a metaphor. Mm. Um, then it says, I'm skipping ahead. The law was brought in. So we're talking about the law, what's right and wrong, mm-hmm. what should be punished and what should not be. Judgment. Judgment. The law was brought in so that the trespass, which one may think of as like the wrongdoing, Right, violating like the, the law. The violation, right. So the law was brought in so that the violation may increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Mm. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace must reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say? This is the important part, I think. 
What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ were baptized in his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with him in death. And we will certainly be united with him in resurrection, yada, yada, yada. So there's some kind of redemption. I mean, that's the redemption arc, of mm-hmm. course. But, mm-hmm. you know, saying that there's this kind of like paradoxical thing, again, difficult to understand. He's literally saying violations. Here's the law. The law is true. And it's there so that the trespass is even more of a violation. But that was so that the violation could be conquered by, you know, mm, it's, grace. it's counter, yeah. the opposite. Yeah, grace and mercy and all these things. Yeah, And then uh, the even harder part to understand. So, well, if it's kind of in this infinite loop of increase of goodness because of the badness shouldn't we keep doing even more evil so that more good can come and he's like well of course not you fools you know like right there's kind of to your question earlier what do you do with the love and it's like well you do what's right you know with judgment and love right without that part you go oh well then sin is good let's keep going further and further and let's not feel it and not worry about it and actually those we take the bad and call it good which yeah. is like this little tweak of the whole story yeah. of humanity, which is not good. Like, it's like, it's evident, and it's also a difficult under, to understand. Like, it's yeah. evident that bad is bad, and that more bad is not good. Yeah. That obviously there's some kind of a paradox there. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think, yeah, just to close, I think, yeah, in some way, I think that is the true message of acceptance. Like, it's like you're never going to be perfect. You're not perfectible, but you can strive and defend the virtues of perfection. And I yeah, think. Let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Right. Like, uh, yeah, like Snape, you know, he could have just scorned, uh, you know, the, the perfection of Gryffindor or whoever, whatever he was not. You know, he wasn't. James Potter, like Harry's father, who got Harry to Potter's marry. Was Harry school? Was he Gryffindor? I can't remember yeah. the names of anything. Oh, yeah. Okay. He didn't get to marry Lily, this woman he loved, and have this perfect, you know, you know, marriage and kid and whatnot. He was excluded from that, and he could have just scorned that and sought to destroy it and become a true dark Slytherin. But instead, despite being outside of that, he defended it. You know, he committed his life to defending Hogwarts and the virtues and others and Harry, um, the product of that virtue. So I think, uh, yeah, there's something something deep there. Mm. Yeah. Let me see something. I was just looking yeah. at the meaning of Griffin. Griffin is a name. Isn't it a lord or prince? An animal? It's like also a, an, a creature. Yeah. yeah. It's also a mythical creature, the lion, eagle thing. But then... yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to find this other one. Yeah. Of course, Slytherin. It's like the snake. <laughs> so. Which a lion is like, uh, 
it's such an old archetype, like pride. Like the lion, a lion is, you know, it lives in a pride. Um, like there's a pride of lions. Um, mm. And but lion is also like prideful, like as much as pride. Well, there's is only the f- one. There's only one male lion, I think, in the pride. So it's very hierarchical. Right, and as much as the virtue of pride is the lion's strength, it's also its downfall. Is like hubris. You know, the lion mm. becomes too prideful, and I think you see that play out over and over because the lion is also like interesting. The lion calls out the best out of other people. Like the lion roars, you know, scares people, you know, with his righteousness, with his pride, like his rightful pride. Mm. Um, But yeah, I think there's temperance there as well. And so there's something very interesting about people too that I think people sort of embody that you encounter, like the lion, like someone who calls out the, the darkness in people, who sees it, you know, scares it out of them perhaps. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. The whole thing Mm. is very, like, I think, I really do think it's unconscious. Like, I think she couldn't have written this consciously because I don't think anyone, like, you can't even say what all of this means. Like, we're trying to just describe the meaning of all of these symbols and the symbolism in the story and whatnot. And it's like, you can't even capture it. And so I think part of it, it's like, it can't be conscious. Like, you're not even able to be fully conscious of this stuff. It's kind of like that little thing, the little story, you know, like the good leads, the bad leads to the good. So does the, I exalt the bad more so the good can increase. It's like, it's kind of like this recognition of a continuation and there's, it doesn't, it's maybe it doesn't stop in any way, but you can reach a point of becoming highly destructive. Right. And... Yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think we're in a phase of destruction of sorts, of a, a bad, oh, yeah. not great place, you know. I just bought that book. The uh, what, what was it called? I talked about it recently, The fourth, the Four Turnings or whatever it's called. Mm. There's Strauss-Howe generational theory about every 80 years, what happens and what kind of people it creates and then what comes next. Mm. So... Well, as soon as that arrives, I'll be on to uh, We'll be on to it. We'll be on to that whole story arc. Uh, interesting. Well, yeah. Well, for next time, listeners, we'll catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>